This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 133, entitled, The Early Christian View of God in 1 Peter. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I appreciate you so much for joining us for this week's podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I want to offer a last-minute reminder to our listeners that I will be participating in a live debate on the nature of Jesus' pre-existence. This debate will take place on Sunday, August 16th in the evening. And if you would like to view this debate live, there is a Zoom link posted on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Facebook page. If you would like to view it on your own time, there will be a recorded version of it, both in video and audio form. And this is for those that would like to watch it at their own pace so they can pause it and think through many of the arguments that are being made. I will also be doing a series of podcast episodes on the content of the debate starting next week. So please look forward to that. This week's episode will shift away from looking at the monotheism and Christology in the early letters of Paul to looking at the early Petrine view of monotheism and Christology. In doing so, we are going to explore 1 Peter to see what it has to say about the true God, about the person of Jesus, and the relationship between God and the risen Jesus. In order to understand the significance of the views within this letter, we need to briefly consider issues of authorship and date. Many commentators have marveled over the sophisticated prose of 1 Peter, and they have questioned, with some validity, whether an untrained Galilean fisherman turned apostle could have composed such a document by himself. In response, I would like to respectfully point out that 1 Peter acknowledges the help of a scribe, Silvanus. And you can see this in 1 Peter 5, verse 12. The author says that he wrote through Silvanus. Silvanus acted as a scribe, or the technical term is an amanuensis. So while one can reasonably question what Peter could have produced all by himself, the letter itself admits that it came to fruition with the help of a scribe whom, by the way, the book of Acts declares to be a Roman citizen. There really is no reason to question, therefore, the influence of Peter upon this letter, so it can be reasonably dated within the historical Peter's lifetime. Peter died in the year 64 CE, so we're probably looking at a date of 1 Peter sometime in the early 60s, assuming all of the things I just said in the last five minutes are actually true. 
So we can actually compare and contrast the monotheism of First Peter with other Second Temple Jewish texts. If I'm correct, then First Peter was written prior to the destruction of the temple. First Peter declares on more than one occasion that Jesus died, quote, in the flesh, end quote. Is this an indication that Peter thought that Jesus possessed two natures, an in-the-flesh human nature and a second divine nature? Furthermore, Peter speaks of the Spirit of Christ. Is this a reference to indicating that Jesus pre-existed his birth as a spirit? Moreover, 1 Peter opens its letter with a reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Should readers conclude that 1 Peter is indicating implicit Trinitarianism? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the Christian portrayal of God in 1 Peter. So the Greek noun theos, which is translated God, appears 39 times within 1 Peter. 1 Peter is only five chapters long, so God appearing 39 times is a pretty decent collection of occurrences over the course of five chapters. Now, when the Christian God is qualified in 1 Peter, he is always qualified as the Father. God is described as a Father, in fact, three times within 1 Peter. In the opening paragraph, we have in chapter 1 and verse 3, which describes God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. So, Right from the outset, we learn that Jesus has a God and Jesus has a Father. And this God is the Father and he is the God of Jesus. God is also described as the one who impartially judges, according to chapter 1, verse 17. This passage reads, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay. So this one person who impartially acts as the judge is the Father. And there are no references within First Peter to the noun God, Greek noun Theos, that are applied to Jesus or even to the Holy Spirit. For First Peter, the Father alone is the true God. Now there is perhaps a subtle distinction that Peter is making between God and the Roman emperor. Look at what he says in this particular comment in chapter 2:17. Peter says, "Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king." That's in chapter 2 and verse 17. Now many people within the Greco-Roman world would have considered that Caesar, namely the king here, is God. But what Peter does at this point is that he says, well, we should still give some sort of honoring to the king, and he uses the same verb for honoring the king as you would honor the people, but he distinguishes the king from God. 
That's something that I think is subtle, but I think it's very important to indicate that Peter is not acknowledging emperor worship. He's actually saying that Caesar isn't God. Caesar is someone who is distinct from the true God. And the level of honor that you would give to the king is the same level of honor that you would give to all the people. So that's pretty interesting. Now the believer's experience, according to 1 Peter, is oriented towards God. And often God is described as the God with the definite article in Greek within 1 Peter. And this religious orientation of a believer's experience is expressed in many different ways, according to 1 Peter. We are to glorify God in the day of visitation, chapter 2, verse 12. Believers are described as bond slaves of God in chapter 2, 16. Believers also have a good conscience towards God in 2, 19. In regard to suffering, chapter 2, verse 20 says, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Believers who have a gentle and quiet spirit are precious in the sight of God. Of course, in regard to hope, believers are to hope in God, chapter 3, verse 5. They also appeal to God for a good conscience, chapter 3, verse 21. And lastly, they live for the will of God in chapter 4, verse 2. It's interesting that God is described as the single creator. There is not more than one creator, according to 1 Peter. In chapter 4, verse 19, we get a sense of how Peter understands God as the creator. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 19. There, God is described as the creator, the one person who creates. There is not two creators or three creators, there's just one creator. And this one creator is God. And God is described in 1 Peter as the Father. So the Father is the one creator. And we also see that God is the one who redeems and exalts people. Chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he, singular pronoun, may exalt you at the proper time. So God is the one who exalts. The creator is also the one that redeems and exalts people. Now, of course, as we're going to see, God is the one who exalted Jesus. So, we can say with some confidence that the same God who exalted Jesus will also exalt believers at the proper time. So Peter's portrayal of God is completely consistent with Jewish monotheism that we see within Second Temple Judaism. God, in 1 Peter, is a single person. God is distinct from Christ, and God is the sole creator. The portrayal of God in 1 Peter would have been easily recognized and shared by Second Temple Jews. So that's enough about God. Let's look at how Peter understands 
the crucified and risen Jesus. This moves us to our second point. Point number two, the Christian portrayal of Jesus in 1 Peter. Let's do a little bit of statistical word studies. We can see that the given human name Jesus is used nine times in 1 Peter. So about twice per chapter. It is interesting, though, that the more common way that Peter likes to describe Jesus is by using the title Christ. Christ appears 22 times, more than double the number of occurrences that we see of the name Jesus, 22 times. Out of those 22 times, three of them refer to believers that are in Christ. And this is likely drawing upon Paul's theology of persons that are represented by the Messiah. And the Messiah, in Jewish theology, you should know this, the Messiah was the king who represented his people. And so those who are in Christ are within the sphere of Christ's redemptive activity. Sometimes, in 1 Peter, Christ is used by itself. And this indicates that Christ has become a reference to the anointed king of the kingdom. And this title Christ is being used more or less as a formal title. It's functioning as a proper name. So we don't say the Christ. We could just refer to Jesus as Christ. That is how Peter is often referencing Jesus. The other title that is used in reference to Jesus is Lord, Greek noun Kyrios, four times within 1 Peter. Of course, it's very important that we understand that the New Testament writings were written within the context of the Greco-Roman world, particularly the world of Roman imperialism and Roman ideology that honored the reigning Caesar as Lord, as Savior, and as Son of God. So when 1 Peter talks about Jesus as our Lord, Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he is saying that Jesus is our Lord, and Caesar, by definition, isn't. Now It's also important to note, and I keep reminding my listeners of this extremely important point, that by saying that Jesus is our Lord, Peter is not saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Yes, it is true that Yahweh is called Lord. And the Hebrew name Yahweh, when it was translated in the Septuagint, was rendered often as Kyrios, as the Lord. But it's important to note that you cannot say our Yahweh with the understanding that our Lord has a reference to Yahweh. Yahweh is a proper name. You don't say our Yahweh. You don't say that. That's not even a Hebrew phrase. So the reference to Jesus being our Lord is not a reference to Yahweh. It's a reference to a title given to someone who is exalted. And it's likely taking that title away from Caesar, giving it to Jesus, but also acknowledging that Jesus is the risen and highly exalted Lord. It's a title of lordship that has been given to Jesus upon his resurrection and promotion to God's right hand. We can see more of this in chapter 3 and verse 15, where Peter says that you are to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 15. 
So they are to set apart Christ as Lord within their hearts. And this, again, is a subtle reminder that Jesus is the true Lord, not Caesar. Furthermore, the risen Christ Jesus for Peter is to be regarded with this Caesar title. Now, Peter could have said, hey, you need to sanctify Christ as God in your hearts, or you need to sanctify Christ as Yahweh in your hearts, or Christ as the Almighty. He doesn't do that. He says that Jesus is the Lord, the exalted title for exalted human beings. And this is not a divine title. He does not say sanctify Christ with a divine title. Those divine titles are reserved for the Father. Now Jesus, because of his spilt blood, resurrection, and exaltation, is a figure that needs to be obeyed. And if he's someone that needs to be obeyed, then Jesus is clearly a figure bearing a measure of authority. In chapter 1 and verse 2, Peter says that we need to obey Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let's talk about Jesus in regard to the suffering servant. In chapter 2, verse 21, we have a passage here where a reference to Isaiah's suffering servant is applied to Jesus. Starting in chapter 2, verse 21, the text says, For you have been called for this purpose, since... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who, this is the beginning of the Isaiah quotation, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. End quote. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That's First Peter 2, 21 through 24. And we can see here that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. We already demonstrated that the one who is the judge is God the Father. But the important point in this passage is that the reference to Isaiah's suffering servant is now applied to Jesus. Jesus is pretty clearly interpreted as Isaiah's suffering servant. Jesus is embodying that role within his own ministry and person. Now, Isaiah's suffering servant that we see in Isaiah chapters 42 through 53 This suffering servant figure originally referred to the nation of Israel and Israel's special role in the purposes of God. Jesus has embodied that role formerly given to Israel, specifically as Israel's Messiah. And remember, the Messiah is a representative of the people. So it makes sense that the Messiah could represent a nation. So for 1 Peter, the suffering servant is applied to Israel's messianic and royal representative, Jesus. Now, chapter 3 and verse 18 begins a passage that talks about the death of Jesus in the flesh. And some people have concluded that this means that Jesus only died in his body, but 
either his soul continued to live on, or if you are a dual nature theologian, you think that Jesus died in his humanity and that his divinity continued to live on. So Jesus only partially died. But let's see what this passage is saying. Chapter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just and the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. That's 1 Peter 3, 18-20. So Jesus died in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Now if you look at this and you wanted to read into the text, a doctrine of dual natures or a dualistic view of man to where there's a body and an immortal soul. You could read that into the text, but I don't think that that's how you would pull information from the text if you began with what the text says. It's interesting to see how this phrase, in the flesh, continues to be used in 1 Peter. If you look in chapter 4, first two verses, it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So believers are also to suffer in the flesh. Does that mean that they have two natures or that they are just dying in the body and they have an immortal soul? Passage goes on, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the life in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That again is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 2. And at the end of that passage, it talks about the ideal believer. The ideal believer is someone who suffers in the flesh. Because of that, they cease to sin. They live the rest of their life in the flesh, no longer in regard to the lust, but according to the will of God. So believers also suffer in the flesh. It seems that in the flesh just means that we suffer in our body that is mortal. And we're looking forward to the exaltation where we get new bodies, new resurrection, immortal bodies. But the reference to in the flesh just means here in our mortality. That's all that it seems to mean. The point being is that Jesus being put to death in the flesh is not making a special distinguish reference to the flesh as part of Jesus. It's the same flesh that he shares with all humanity. Now, to be made alive in the Spirit means to be made alive as the Spirit has resurrected Jesus and given him immortality. And in that condition of resurrection, Jesus went and made proclamation to these spirits now in prison, these particular spirits that were disobedient during the days of Noah. So I don't think it's fair to read this passage, chapter 3 and verse 18, and to say that Jesus dying in the flesh means that he only partially died, or that Peter held to a doctrine of two natures. That is not a consistent reading when you read the rest of First Peter, and it really involves reading into the text. Now let's talk about Jesus in his resurrection and exaltation. Chapter 3, verse 22, talks about Jesus, quote, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven 
after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That's chapter 3, verse 22. So after Jesus was raised, he was exalted and promoted to God's right hand, which is in heaven, obviously. And this happened after angels, authorities, and powers had been subjected to him. So if Jesus was promoted over angels, authorities, and powers, and that these were now put under his subjection, then that means that before that, Jesus was not over angels and authorities and powers. God had to exalt and promote Jesus above angels, authorities, and powers. And, of course, now Jesus is sitting in that exalted position of lordship. Where is that? At God's right hand. Jesus continues to be distinguished from God. And by sitting at God's right hand, that means that Jesus is effectively the number two person in the entire universe. Sitting at God's right hand means that Jesus is subordinate to God, but clearly he is exalted above angels, authorities, and powers. Now let's talk about the reference to the Spirit of Christ. This passage in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 is confusing for some people, but I think if we read it, we understand the function of this spirit, and we can identify what the spirit is actually referring to, at least in this particular passage. So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as it predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's First Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. So what does this Spirit actually do? Well, it indicates through predictions the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So these prophets were searching and they were inquiring, and the searching implies they were searching in the scriptures. This spirit here seems to function as the Holy Spirit. So I'm wondering here, if this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, why is it being described as the Spirit of Christ? Clearly it's something that was active in Old Testament times. It predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So I think this can be responsibly interpreted uh, in two different ways, and that doesn't necessarily mean that these two are mutually exclusive. There's actually some overlap. It could be that the reference to the Spirit of Christ, with that genitive, is the Spirit that concerned Christ, using the genitive in the sense of describing the Spirit of Christ, meaning the spirit that is telling them about the sufferings of Christ, telling them about Christ's glories to follow. So it's a spirit that is telling them about Christ, the spirit of Christ, in that sense of the genitive case. That is a possibility. It could also mean the spirit which we now know and understand and experience as coming through the resurrected and exalted Jesus. This would be Peter holding a view of the Spirit that is similar to what we've seen in Paul, to where the Spirit is mediated now, not formally, but now, through the resurrected and exalted Jesus. 
So he's saying the spirit that we now know as the spirit of Christ was that same spirit that back in Old Testament times indicated and predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Of course, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, you're not going to find the phrase spirit of Christ. There really is no indication that this designation, Spirit of Christ, is meant to suggest that Christ pre-existed as the Holy Spirit back in Old Testament times. I don't think there's really any theological system or Christology that actually thinks that Jesus pre-existed as the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit became the man Jesus. That seems to be extremely foreign to the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's much more likely that the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit about Christ that we now understand is the Spirit mediated by Jesus, but that same Spirit is the Spirit that told the prophets about the predicted sufferings and glorification of Jesus. Now, if we actually want to know what was Peter's opinion in regard to Jesus' preexistence. We have a very solid answer in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 is the most telling passage in regard to how Peter understood Jesus' preexistence. It says in chapter 1, verse 20, that he, this is Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. This uses a Greek word, proyonosko, foreknown. Jesus was foreknown. He was previously known in God's plans and purposes before the foundation of the world. What sort of preexistence is this? Is this actual preexistence? No. It is preexistence in God's foreknowledge. That's what foreknown means. It was in God's foreknowledge. It was in God's plans and in his purposes. So Peter's depiction of Jesus sounds like what we've observed in the early letters of Paul. Peter's Christology is not overly developed like what can be observed in the later 4th and 5th centuries, where Christ definitely has two natures, and Christ is fully God in the same way that the Father is God. According to 1 Peter, Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah, and God exalted Jesus to the position of lordship at God's right hand. So having looked at Peter's monotheism and Peter's Christology, we can now turn to ask, how did he understand the relationship between God and Jesus? This will be our third and final point. Point number three, God and Jesus working together in 1 Peter. So there are a few passages that talk about God and Jesus working together, and this helps us to understand where Jesus fits within the Christian experience of a believer and God. In chapter 1 and verse 2, it talks about believers who are also in the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit in order to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's chapter 1, verse 2. So God here is described as a father. It also describes the sanctifying work of the Spirit and believers who need to obey Jesus and the fact that Jesus died 
Jesus had blood. They are sprinkled with his blood. Now, some people look at this verse and say, hey, look, talks about the Father, talks about Jesus, talks about the Spirit. That must prove that God is three in one. The passage doesn't say that. That is not a conclusion that is fairly drawn from the passage. It mentions God, the Spirit, and Jesus, but there's no indication that the Spirit is a separate person from God. It just talks about the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It talks about how the purpose of God's foreknowledge and the sanctifying work of the Spirit is to lead believers to obey Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the one that died, meaning he was mortal. He's not an immortal second person of the Trinity. You have to be careful not to read too much into this particular passage. Let's let the passages of Scripture speak for themselves. God, of course, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And according to chapter 1, verse 21, God not only raised Jesus from the dead, but God gave Jesus glory. Now, if God had to give Jesus glory, that means Jesus didn't have it. It means that God had to share that glory with Jesus. God glorified Jesus in Jesus' exaltation. That's part of the promotion to God's right hand and the subjecting of the angels and authorities and powers to Jesus. Jesus was glorified. And we can look at the temple imagery and the priestly imagery that is used in regard to Jesus. In chapter 2 and verse 5, it talks about believers who are also, as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why are they built up in this spiritual house, in this spiritual house of God, a temple? In order to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are, now catch this, these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So believers are able to offer spiritual sacrifices. They Sacrifices are made to God, but they are made acceptable through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 18, it again indicates that Christ died for the sins once and for all, that he might bring us to God. God is the ultimate goal. Christ, because of his death and resurrection, helps accomplish the bringing of people to God. And it indicates that Jesus is functioning as a mediator position. God is the one who receives sacrifices, and they are mediated through Jesus Christ. God is the one that is reconciling, and the people are brought to God through Jesus Christ. And in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, according to chapter 4 and verse 11. And finally, in chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here, the calling is a calling in Christ. It is to the God of all grace. And it's interesting that that God is described with the singular pronoun. He is a single self. God himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is a single person. He is distinguished from Christ. But he calls believers into his eternal glory in Christ. So, in conclusion, we have observed that 
First Peter offers an interesting look at early Petrine theology and Christology, thus letting interested historians better understand what Christians believed about God and Christ within the Petrine brand of Christianity. Peter appears to have much in common with his brother Paul. We noted that Peter's monotheism was consistent with Second Temple Jewish understandings about God. God is a single person, and when God is qualified in 1 Peter, God is qualified as the Father. Peter does not think that the nature of Jesus' post-resurrection exaltation has included Jesus in the identity of God. God, according to 1 Peter, is the Father alone. And 1 Peter's letter begins by acknowledging that God is the God and the Father of Jesus. In regard to Peter's Christology, we observed a portrayal of the Messiah that was consistent with Second Temple Jewish speculation about exalted human agents. The title, Christ, has become a proper name to regard Jesus as the anointed king of God's kingdom. Peter also frames Jesus as the risen and exalted Lord, thus attributing to Jesus a Caesar title. Jesus existed in God's foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, and this demonstrates that Peter understood Christ's pre-existence to be notional, that is, in the mind and plans of God. The crucified and risen Jesus was exalted above all angels, and he was promoted to God's right hand. Lastly, Peter's understanding of how the one true God and the risen Jesus work together complements monotheism rather than redefines it. God exalted Jesus and gave him glory. In light of Jesus' blood, God calls readers of 1 Peter to obey Jesus. Jesus acts as the mediating person in a believer's relationship with God. Christ allows spiritual sacrifices to be acceptable to God. Christ brings believers to God, and through Christ, believers give glory to God. There is really no indication that the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus moved Peter into thinking that Christ was co-equal with God, or that Christ is now to be included in the identity of God. God and Jesus remain distinct while they work together in the lives of Peter's readers. So in sum, 1 Peter expresses what we might call biblical Unitarian understandings of monotheism and Peter's depiction of Christ best fits in the realm of high human Christology. Join us next week as we look at how my debate on the nature of Jesus' preexistence went, and we will break down some of the finer points of the arguments given. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God, and the humanity of Jesus. 
You can support the podcast for absolutely free, simply by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, by subscribing on iTunes, and writing an honest review. If you feel led to donate to the podcast, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to Dustin Williams for his post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate you folks for listening to this episode. I will see you next time. Until next time, you folks, please take care.